Hello. Yep, lovely. And uh, it's particularly great to have our newest member of our congregation joining with us today, Bethany. Did I say that right? Close? Bethany. Bethany. There enough. No, no, Bethany. It's Bethany. It's Bethany. You've got to do it right, you know. Parents choose names for a reason. Um, I chose Joshua. Uh, for, for my son Joshua uh, because I love the name, I love the character in the Bible and I've never met a bad Joshua. Now that might not be your experience of Joshua's but you know there we go. It's like when teachers have kids and they're like choosing names, it's like nah that one's off, nah I knew a kid and he was a little whatever or you know she was terrible you know nah that, that's not a name available for us to choose. So I'm not sure if uh, if you've had those sort of similar conversations as parents when choosing names for your kids. Um, I also like to know what, what it might be um, shortened as. And if you don't like the nickname, then probably don't choose the name. Yeah, so um, that's, uh, it's good to have everyone here though today. And uh, it's great to be here together worshiping. Uh, we are in the book of Ruth today. Um, so if you want to get your Bibles out, you'll be able to follow us along eventually when I sort of get into it a bit more. Two figures crested the horizon of the Judean desert. One an old widow, the other a younger one. Wrinkles creviced the face of the first and road dust covered the faces of them both. They huddled together as they walked, so much so an onlooker might mistake them as one person, which was all right for them, for really all they had was each other. Ten years prior, a famine had driven the elder one, Naomi, and her husband out of Bethlehem, and their family had migrated into the enemy territory of Moab. That's where the couple found fertile soil to farm and found girls for their two sons to marry. But then tragedy struck. Naomi's husband died and so did his sons and so they resolved to return to her hometown of Bethlehem. Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law, resolved to go with Naomi and so this pair could have hardly been a more pitiful sight as they entered the village. They had no money. They had no possessions. They had no children to raise. They had no farm to cultivate. In the 12th century BC, a woman's security was found in her husband and her future was found in her sons. These two widows, well, they had neither. They'd be lucky to find a bunk at the Salvation Army. Now, the elder of the two women described their circumstances. Perhaps you have noticed the words of Ruth chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, where she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because your mighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You know what the name Naomi means? means pleasant or sweet. She said, don't call me pleasant or sweet. Call me Mara. You know, she was so despondent about all that had happened to her that she said to her friends, why are you calling me this name? 
Just call me Mara. Do you know what Mara means? Better. Call me better. Her heart had turned the same as her life. It had turned better. I'm not sure about you, but maybe you might be able to relate. You know, I, call a, I recall a woman that could relate. She came forward for prayer during a worship service. Her face was pale and awash with tears. She was thin and she walked forward with her, and, and she held herself tight as though if she would let go, her heart would fall out. She had an unkept look about her, jeans and thongs, unwashed hair, and it was as if just getting to church was enough for get cleaning up. She'd been recently diagnosed with lupus and lives in pain. Unpaid bills had compelled her husband to take a contract job overseas in Turkey, and she, she and her son were alone for a few years. Oh, sorry, for a year at this point. He'd gone dark, and by dark I mean gothic kind of dark. He seldom talked, but when he did, he talked about death and devils, and, and it even mentioned suicide. This mother had likely never heard the story of Naomi or Ruth, but the story of these two widows would encourage her. We'd also encourage a man that I met in a restaurant. He had a, a basketball sort of sporty you know, look to him. And he was really tall and you know, I have had many tall friends throughout my life. And I'll tell you what, every time, your neck always hurts. Did I tell you about my friend in high school, Emerson? He was six foot nine in grade nine and he, then he had an afro as well. So he looked 10 foot tall it seemed. And he was one of my best friends, and so I was always talking like this. So yeah, I'm, I'm well used to that. But this guy, he took a job in sales, and that sort of turned south, and then COVID hit, and things went further south, and well, he's unemployed now. And has been for 12 months. He's got an education, he has a family, but he's also got an appointment with Centrelink, a place he never thought he'd find himself. His life turned bitter. Hope the size of a splinter, solutions as scarce as the sunlight in Antarctica in June, and we wonder, does God have an answer? Does God have an involvement? Does God have a solution for times like these? Days of drought and doubt and debt and disease does God show up in places like these? And in the world of sick mums or unemployed dads or penniless widows walking from Moab, maybe you're wondering about that for you. If so, then the story of Ruth is a story for you. Now, according to the first verse of the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth took place in the days of the judges. Now, the days occupy, of, of the judges occupy about 400 years in between the days of Joshua and the days of Saul. And so we are right around 1300 BC. It was a difficult time. The days of judges were days of irregular leadership and inconsistent faith of the Hebrew people. 
Ruth found herself, the widow of Moab, this widow of Moab, entering the city of Bethlehem during a dark time for the children of Israel. This book of Ruth is a brief book. It's only four chapters, but it gives us a glimpse into the way God helps the hurting heart during dark times. It's a beautiful book. In his commentary on the book of Ruth, F.B. Huey called it the most beautiful short story ever written. The 3,000-year-old love story, full of heart-stopping moments. Again, the characters are Naomi, the mother-in-law, Ruth, the daughter-in-law, and then there's a man by the name of Boaz. This story is set in the ancient version of Bethlehem. Yes, Bethlehem. Long before Bethlehem was known for its manger and magi, and long before it became the home of a young shepherd boy of the name of David. Bethlehem is known as the stage for the Bible's best-known story of romance and redemption. It seems to me that the book of Ruth, or the story of Ruth, divides itself into scenes. And scene number one would be called, It Was Love at First Sight. The women shuffled into the village and they set about trying to find sustenance. So Ruth went to a nearby field to scavenge enough grain for bread. Enter stage right, Boaz. (coughs) Just for the fun of it, let's picture Boaz as a handsome young man with a square jawline, wavy hair, with biceps that flex and pecs that pop and teeth that sparkle and and pockets that jingle. His education was elite, his jet was private, his farm was profitable, his house was sprawling and paid for. He had no intention of interrupting his charmed life with marriage. He was a happy bachelor. But then he saw Ruth. She wasn't the first immigrant to forage grain out of his farm, but she was the first to steal his heart. Her glance caught his, and when he saw her, that was all it took. Eyes the shape of almonds, hair the colour of chocolate, a face just foreign enough to enchant, a blush just bashful enough to intrigue, his heart began to pound like a kettle drum and his knees turned to jelly. And just as fast as you can turn the page in the Bible, Boaz learned her name, her story, her Facebook status. He upgraded their workstation. He made sure she had a good meal and, and he told his overseers to protect her. In a word, he gave her grace. At least that's the word Ruth used. I'm reading from a paraphrase. It's called the message Chapter 2, verse 13 says, Oh, sir, such grace, such kindness. I don't deserve it. You've touched my heart, treated me like one of your own, and I don't even belong here. Ruth went home that day with a 15-kilo sack of grain and a smile she couldn't wipe off her face. Naomi heard the story and recognised the name, then the opportunity. Boaz, she thought. Boaz, I know that name. Then it dawned on her. Boaz was the kid that used to show up at the family reunion. Boaz was Rahab's boy. She was related to him. 
So Naomi's head began to spin with possibilities. This being harvest season, Boaz would be spending the night on the threshing floor with his workers to protect the crop from intruders. So here's the instruction that Naomi gave to Ruth. Wash. Pretty good place to start. Wash. Get nice and clean. Scrub yourself up. Put on perfume. Oh, that's very important to smell nice, isn't it? And get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Whew. Excuse me while I just fan myself for just a minute. What in the world is this story doing in the Bible? It's a story of Moabite seduction. Boaz, full-bellied and sleepy. We've all been there, haven't we, gentlemen? Ruth, bathed and, 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 and perfumed. She was told to uncover his feet and lie down. What in the world was Naomi thinking? How improper. Well, a couple of answers to what she might have been thinking. She may have been thinking it was time for Ruth to get on with her life. This phrase that she uses when she tells Ruth to put on her clothes and get cleaned up is an interesting phrase. And it's found elsewhere in ancient literature to describe removing the clothing of mourning. She was still mourning the death of her husband. And as long as Ruth was dressed in black, a respectable man like Boaz, well, well he wouldn't have anything to do with her out of respect. And so maybe Naomi was saying, Ruth, it's time to move on. It's time to move on. Also, there's no doubt that Naomi was thinking about the law of the kinsman redeemer. Now, in the translation we use in the story, which is the NIV, it's called the law of the guardian redeemer. And I kind of like the phrase kinsman redeemer a little bit better because it tells us how the kinsmen ought to be loyal to their family. The law is a bit complex. But if we had to reduce it down to a paragraph or two, it would read like this. If a man died without children, his property was transferred not to his wife, but to his brother. This practice kept the land in the clan, but it also left the, win the widow vulnerable. So to protect her, the law required the brother of the deceased man to marry the childless widow. Now, if the deceased husband had no brother his nearest male relative was to provide for the widow, but he didn't necessarily have to marry her. Again, this law kept the property in the family and it gave the widow some protection and possibly a husband. The law of the kinsman redeemer. So as you recall, Naomi and Ruth had no living children. They did have a cousin named Boaz who had already been kind to them once maybe he would be again. At least it was worth the gamble. So scene number two would be called, cover me with your coat. Picking up on Ruth chapter three, verses six and seven. So she, that is Ruth, 
went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. And it's about this time Ruth is lingering in the shadows, watching the men as they sit around the fire and finish their meals. She notices how one by one they stand up and disappear off into the darkness to go to sleep. Laughter and chatter give way to snores, and soon the threshing floor was quiet. And so, by the light of the still popping fire, Ruth made her move. She crept between the lumps of sleeping men in the direction of Boaz, and upon reaching him, look what she said. I'm sorry, look what she did. She uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Startled indeed, I'm sure. This gesture was roughly the equivalent of giving, of giving an engagement ring. This was like a proposal from Ruth. And to him she said, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer, kinsman redeemer of our family. Now, Boaz was related to the family of Naomi and Ruth. He had no obligation to marry either one of them. He was a relative. He wasn't a brother. She was a foreigner. He was a prominent landowner. She was a destitute alien. He was a local power broker. She was unknown. He was well known. But still, Ruth made the request. She said, will you cover us? And boy, did Boaz smile. He didn't need to be asked twice. He kicked into action and convened a meeting of the city leaders and he summoned a man who, as it turns out, was a closer relative to Naomi than he. Possibly the late husband of Naomi had sold their property to a non-relative as, as he fled the famine. We don't know for sure, but we do know that when Boaz told the nearest relative about the property, the man said he, was, he would exercise his rights and purchase it. But then Boaz gave him the fine print in Ruth chapter 4 verse 5. He said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. In other words, it comes with two ladies that you're responsible for and you've got to take care of them. Well, the relative balked at the offer and I kind of have a feeling Boaz knew he would. And as soon as the other kinsman declined, Boaz grabbed Ruth by the hand and they scurried off to the wedding chapel. See, Boaz had wanted an opportunity to marry Ruth. He had what he wanted. Ruth had what she could never imagine, a man who went into bat for her. Now, perhaps you've noticed that your story is a lot like Ruth's. See, we too are, are poor. Spiritually, for, for sure. Monetary, perhaps. And we wear the robes of death. She buried her husband. But what have you buried? Maybe you've buried your dreams. Maybe you've buried your aspirations. Maybe you've buried your desires. Maybe you've buried someone you love. 
like the mother with lupus or the businessman at Centrelink, we're out of options. But our Boaz has taken notice of us. And just as the landowner approached Ruth, our Boaz, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, he came to us while we were still sinners. He spotted us in need and he made the first move. And just as Boaz protected Ruth, your Jesus protects you. Just as Boaz was able to meet their needs, your Jesus is able to meet yours. And just as Boaz took Naomi and Ruth from bitterness to joy, your Boaz Jesus can do the same for you. You see, Jesus is your kinsman redeemer. He spotted you in the field, ramshackled by hurt, and he resolved to romance your heart through sunsets, through the kindness of a Boaz, through providence, through the whispers of scripture, through the book of Ruth, even maybe through a sermon by me. He's determined to win your affection. Even now, he wants your affection. He wants to win your affection. Now, you might feel like you're marginalised. You may feel like you've been discarded. But God sees you as a masterpiece that is about to happen. And so he covers you. But he covers you not with a coat. He covers you with himself. You know, some years ago, there was a flight from Melbourne to Sydney carrying mainly businessmen. It was one of those morning flights full of suits. You know, so those briefcases, designer suits, newspapers, with, with pretty much only one exception. That one exception was, was notable. A mother was travelling with her four-year-old daughter. And so while all the men were taking out their briefcases on their computers and their tablets and, you know, talking business as they do, she was putting out crayons in the colouring book. And everybody sat back for what they assumed would be an uneventful flight. But just a few moments into the flight, they realised this was not an uneventful flight. The plane jerked to the left and right, and it bounced up and down. The pilot announced that a hydraulic system was failing and they began dumping fuel. And passengers were told to prepare for a rough landing in Melbourne. Fear flooded the cabin. Storied businessmen turned white with fear. Everybody lost their composure. Some men began crying out. The one person who was calm was the mother of the little girl. One businessman later wrote how he heard her voice, her calm, reassuring voice. He turned to see her talking to her child and over and over again, he heard the mother say, I love you. I love you so much. Do you know that I love you more than anything? Yes, mummy, the little girl replied. And remember, the mother would continue, no matter what happens, 
I love you always and that you're a good girl and sometimes things happen that are not your fault and you're still a good girl and my love will always be with you. At some point the mother put her body over the daughters and she strapped the seatbelt over both of them and they prepared to crash. The plane never did crash. The landing gear dislodged and the crisis was averted. But don't you know that little girl never forgot? She never forgot that demonstration of love that day that her mother covered her in hopes of protecting her from tragedy. That's the kind of love our Heavenly Father has for us. That's the kind of love God has for you. The kind of love that engraves your name on His hands. The kind of love that chooses to die so you can live. God does this. God enters the dusty Bethlehems of our lives and he brings hope. Believe this, will you? Believe this. Just, just receive it. You know, sometimes we're so caught up with everything that's going on that we don't open ourselves to hear from God. We don't open ourselves to receive what he's trying to say to us. And I'd ask you today, open whatever's blocking. Receive that deep down in that part of your life that has never received love before. Cling like a barnacle to every hope and covenant. Imitate Ruth and walk in hope. Maybe it's time for you to throw off the morning clothes. Maybe it's time for you to go to the field and make yourself available where you can receive a blessing from God. This is no time for inactivity. This is no time for you to retreat. This is a time for you to step out and step into the light. Step into the place where Boaz will find you and spot you. Take some chances. Take the initiative. You never know. You might even have a role in bringing Christ into the world. Ruth did. As you read the end of the story of Ruth, you find this remarkable detail. The last glance of the life of Ruth has Boaz, Ruth and Naomi posing for a family photo with their brand new baby boy. Boaz wanted to name him Little Bo. Boaz Jr., Boaz II, but Ruth, she preferred Obed, so Obed it was. Obed went on to raise a son named Jesse, who fathered David, the second most famous king to ever be born in Bethlehem. You know the most famous king to ever be born in Bethlehem, right? Jesus Christ, your kinsman redeemer. Who would have thought that Naomi and Ruth would have a role in bringing Jesus Christ into the world? What was bitter became better and resulted in hope. What happened to them? It will happen to you. Just trust God and he will bring it about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we offer a special prayer today to, for anyone who can immediately, immediately relate to and connect with the story of Naomi and Ruth. 
how you used them, how you rescued them, how you romanced them, how you redeemed them. Thank you, Lord. And what you did for them, may you still do in our lives today. By your grace, may we each receive your mercy. And as we trust you, may those things in our lives that are bitter, may they become better and result in hope. This is our prayer through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I think it's quite fitting to end our service with one song before we go into our family meeting. Um, that is No Longer Slaves, a song that declares that we are no longer subjected to 